First John chapter 4. Good to have the Hivelys back from their long odyssey to California. When our kids were about their kids' age, we made the family pilgrimage to Disneyland. Took two weeks and the Aerostar minivan and uh, did all kinds of fun things on the way down and back and of course Disneyland and some of that and and as we pull back into the driveway after this, this wonderful two-week expression of family love, <laughs> one of our children, who is not present today, said, what are we going to do now? <laughs> well, right after I squeeze the ever-living life out of you, we're going to take our suitcases out of the car. No. When our kids would be wanting something so bad that they were nagging and nagging and acting like life would come to an end if they didn't get whatever that was, I would turn around in the car, it seemed like many times, and say, you need to change your wanter. Your wanter, what you want, it needs to change. Because that is not going to (laughs) happen. You need to change your wanter. We're going to learn today from God's Word today about your wanter in regard to conflict and reconciliation. We're studying this topic over a number of weeks, and as we come to the, as we come closer to actually considering how do we reconcile conflicts that do arise, the first point is to say, I want reconciliation. I want reconciliation. The truth is, many times when conflict arises, we don't want reconciliation. We want separation. We want an ending in some fashion, but we don't want what God wants, which really, if I was to describe it positively, would be a life of peace with our brothers and sisters, our family members, those that we work with, so the question I'm going to ask today is why is it important to why is it important to resolve interpersonal conflicts? Why is it important from God's perspective to resolve interpersonal conflicts or inter you know interpersonal sometimes maybe gives the idea of just two people. I'm it may be two people or 200, but why is it important to resolve interpersonal conflicts? The first reason comes from 1 John 4 starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the payment, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And then drop down to verse 20. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The first answer to the question, why is it important to resolve interpersonal conflicts, is this. 
to prove that we are the children of God. Now, I, I understand there's a sense in which you don't have to prove your faith in God to anybody. I understand that. There's a sense in which I don't get to judge you. I understand that. All I'm saying is that God, right here in 1 John 4, says, if you call yourself a Christian, then one of the things that should be happening is loving your brothers, and that includes reconciliation when there is a conflict. We cannot let conflict exist and somehow walk away and say, well, that's just the way things are, nothing we can do about it, or walk away and say, I don't want to do anything about it. We're familiar with, with this part of the definition of God's love. This is a famous verse. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And so we might define God's love as a sacrificing love. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for others. And surely God commands us to that kind of love in various places in the New Testament. But there's another element to God's love, which 1 John 4 talks about, and certainly other parts of the Scripture talk about as well. Verse 9 of 1 John 4, In this the love of God was manifested or, or made to be seen toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son, into the world that we might live through him. Before the sacrifice of Christ came the pursuit of Christ. God's love is not just a sacrificing love, it is a pursuing love. A pursuing love. Did the men who became apostles, like Peter, James, and John, seek Christ? Or did he seek them? Were they walking around Israel going, where's the Messiah? Where's the Messiah? No, they were fishing, fishing. And Jesus came along and said, hey, follow me. Did Saul, who hated Christ, was he pursuing Christ or was Christ pursuing him? He's walking down the road looking for Christians to put in jail. And God came along and said, hey, God sought him. What about that old jail warden in Philippi? Did he go to a preaching service in Philippi? He said, well, I heard the apostles are in town. I think I'll go down and see what they're saying. No, God brought Paul and Silas into jail. And God knew that wouldn't be enough. And so God put his finger on that jail and went like that. And when all the prisoners stayed put... The jailer came running in, and immediately he knew something unique was happening, and he was afraid for his life, and he said, what must I do to be saved? He did it because God was seeking him. We sang the song today, You did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. God's love is a pursuing love. And so if we, if we would say, well, I love God, then John says, great, do you love your brother? You say, yes, I love my brother. And the question is, when there is a conflict, do you pursue reconciliation? Because if you don't, then your love is not like God's love. It needs to grow. It needs to change. And ultimately, if that kind of love is not present with you, 
God says you need to look inside and check your salvation. We should be seeking the welfare of others just as He has sought our welfare. When conflicts arise, we should put our desires aside and care for others enough to initiate resolution of problems. The second answer to the question, why should we resolve conflicts, is this. To pursue God's desire for us. Now, if I were to ask you today, before I started this sermon, what is God's desire for us? You might say, to glorify Him. You might say, to be righteous or to be like Christ. Those are all excellent answers, true answers, that give us the answer to the overarching question of life. What are we supposed to be? What what does God want for us? But within those concepts of glorifying God, of living righteously, listen to these specific commands. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. Pursue peace. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Wow. Is that saying what I think it's saying? That if you are so unwilling to pursue peace, it might be an indication that you don't know the Lord. Endeavoring, working, giving effort to keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For he who would love... Excuse me, love life and see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Let him refrain his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Clearly, Those verses define evil as not pursuing peace. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Seems pretty clear to me that if you want to be righteous, you also need to be a peace seeker, a resolver of conflict. God wants us to live in peace. And since conflict and disagreement will never go away while we are still imperfect, sinful human beings, we have to be people who then work at reconciliation. It's not not negative. It's not being a doom, a naysayer to to say there's always going to be conflict. It's strictly saying, look, God tells us that our sin nature has been crucified. It will be removed. But in the interim time, we struggle to do what is right. And so sometimes by accident, we will create a conflict. Sometimes we just plain don't like what someone's doing and we get into an argument with them. No matter what it is, God wants us to always have a goal of peace. Not a goal of, I want my way. And so if the goal is peace, there has to be an ongoing effort at reconciliation. 
We don't have the luxury of thinking like a man that I knew several years ago who said this, I don't believe in addressing conflict in the church. I went, what? You know how he addressed conflict? He left. That doesn't change anything, folks. That You know, a, a husband and wife can get upset with each other, and maybe if they let it go on for years, one or both of them say, boy, I want some peace, so I'm leaving. That doesn't make peace. That just removes you from the source of conflict. But that's not making peace. Church members do the same thing. People at work. I knew a young man years ago that had a hard time holding a job. And he went to a job. He had a job as a checker in a hardware store, you know, just swiping that stuff and taking people's money. And somebody said something kind of off to him. He took off his little shirt, put it down, and just walked out. That's that for that. Really? That's it? Okay. God says, if you're going to be a godly person, a growing godly person, there's got to be conflict resolution. God has given us the power to work things out and a mandate to work things out. Anybody can take their ball and go home when the game doesn't go their way. Anyone can pretend that conflict never happened. Anyone can sweep sinful behavior under the rug. That happens in secular organizations all the time. But we aren't secular and we aren't an organization. We are the body of Christ. And so if we want to pursue God's desire for us, we've got to be peace seekers and peacemakers. Number three, why should we resolve conflict? To please God. To please God. When you came to church today, were you thinking... I want to make God happy. I, I hope you were. You might have just been simply thinking, I'm, I'm going to be late, I'm going to be late, got to hurry up. When you get up in the morning, are you thinking, I want to make God happy today? You ever thought about that? We, we often think about that with other people. I want you to make me happy today. But what are you thinking toward God? God says if we would please Him we need to be people who work through difficulties. Listen to Matthew 5, which the topic here that we're going to come to, the real topic is worship. But listen to what pleases God. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, or you are a fool, that sort of thing, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, therefore, if you've acted that way, if you've been mean to your brother, leave your gift at the altar. When you bring your gift to the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift before the altar. Go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. If you're not right with your brother, you aren't right with God, and nothing you do will please him, including worship. Somehow we try to compartmentalize our life, 
And we say, well, I'm coming to church. I'm going to sing God's praises. I'm going to pray with the pastor praise. I'm going to listen to the word. I'm going to fellowship. I'm going to go to the picnic and encourage my brothers and sisters. And we think, I'm going to do all of that. And God's going to be happy with me today. And God's up in heaven saying, if you're born again, you should love your brother and you should take care of that difficulty. And then... You should come to church and sing those songs and pray those prayers and learn that truth and do that fellowship. <clears throat> Sometimes people want to take God's word and kind of dissect it in a funny way. You know that passage that says when you come to have communion, you're supposed to be right with God. You're not supposed to take communion if there's sin in your life. I knew a man years ago who just didn't take communion. And somehow he thought that solved the problem. Well, I'm, I'm not right with God, so I am better let that go by. Do you think that's what God intended? God th God's up in heaven going, well, now, boy, that makes me happy. You're living in sin, but you're not taking communion. Good for you. It's the same thing here, folks. Put that big check in the offering. Boy, I really blessed God today. No. Leave your gift, go be reconciled, come back. David, the Old Testament psalmist, he knew this truth, and he wrote it this way. If I regard, if I hang on to iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Talking about prayer. Sin of any kind, including, but not limited to, the sin of, of not living in peace, creates a cloud between us and God. And no amount of religious activity will please him if that is the case. Do you want to please God? Obey his instruction to live in peace. Why should we resolve conflict number four? To protect ourselves and others from spiritual harm. Yesterday, as we drove down the road, I had a new perspective on safety in the car because I had my commentator right behind me there, Malachi, telling me about every tree and every hill and every bus and every train track. And I had the other one going, <laughs> you look over at her and she's got, got big wide eyes, she's kind of following whatever Malachi does, you know. I'm driving down the road, and I'm thinking, oh, God, please don't let us have a car crash, because I'd never be able to face these, the parents of these kids. Man, that would just kill me if something happened to them while I was driving the car. And it kills me the same way when some of my sheep put themselves in harm's way Because they refuse to live the way God says to live. Pursue peace. That's the command. With all people, with holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this... Many become defiled. 
You might think that your refusal to reconcile a problem is your business. I got news for you. God says if you live in bitterness, which essentially is the refusal to forgive because of a wrong suffered, if you live that way, many are defiled. And you could just draw circles around yourself every two feet, and you could draw the concentric impact of your bitterness. And listen to this. This is the scariest thing. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance. Though he sought it diligently with tears. I will confess to you, I don't fully understand that passage, but I get the idea that God is saying, look at Esau. He lived wickedly, and he made wrong choices, and he came to a point where he wanted to fix his life, and he couldn't fix it anymore. He couldn't go back. Repentance means to change your mind, to change your life, to go from this way to that way. And he got to a point where he had lived in sin so long that he couldn't go back. That scares me. That scares me worse than a car accident. And it ought to scare you. It ought to scare you so much that you say, God, I am not going to let the sin, the sun go down on my wrath. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Do you know why this is so important? Because here's what happens when you let the sun go down on your wrath. You give a place to the devil in your life. I know good and well, before I read the scripture, if I had the hand raised and say, how many of you want to play on the devil's team today? You'd, ha, 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 Pastor Dave knew I don't want to play on the devil's team. That'd be good. But here's where you make the choice. Do you let the sun go down on your wrath or not? Do you make things right with God and man or not? Did it ever occur to you that your refusal to resolve conflict will open the door for the work of Satan in your life? Now, I'm not talking about demon possession. I don't believe that a demon can possess a Christian any more than we can fly to the moon without a spaceship. But here's what happens. When you allow sin to remain in your life, what happens to your thought processes? They start to respond to worldly input. And you get this worldly input that says, oh, hey, you deserve, oh, hey, you've been hurt and offended. And all this worldly input, and you're going, yeah, 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 yeah. And God's word is over there on your nightstand just like that. And you're taking all this in. And the devil who works through the world in which we live has come around you and whispered in your ear through all of these sources and you're living in bitterness, and many are becoming defiled, starting with yourself. (laughs) You're not going to hurt anyone more than you're going to hurt yourself. But what I want you to understand is, (sighs) this is not just a choice Well, I could live this way or I could live that way. It's a choice between spiritual safety and spiritual harm. 
when we obey God, when we obey God by working through our conflicts, by approaching them in the way He says to approach them, we are able to live in peace. And the result is peace around us. Wow. Number five, why should we resolve conflict? To promote the work of Christ. If we really want the work of Christ to go forward, we have to work at living in peace. Listen to these words of Jesus. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Our oneness witnesses to the world that the world might believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. And he repeats it, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The reality of Christ is demonstrated by the unique actions of the body of Christ. Now, this isn't the only unique action we're supposed to do. We are supposed to love one another. When one of our brothers or sisters is in trouble, we're supposed to help them. In fact, I've got a whole book this thick about the unique actions of the body of Christ over the, over the, the uh, 2,000 years since Christ. The fact that Christians were the ones that were compassionate enough to create hospitals. The secular world, the unbelieving world didn't create hospitals. Christians did. Christians created public education. I understand all the difficulties we have with that in our society today, but the idea that we're going to help people learn to read and write who can't help themselves, that was a Christian initiative. And you go right down the line with all kinds of wonderful things that we've done that, that witness to the world, we are unique, we are different. But one of them that, that escapes us sometimes is working through conflict and difficulty. If we want to participate in God's program, we have got to, if we want to further the work of God's church, we've got to get along. Did the apostles get along? Have you ever thought about that? Twelve, I'm going I'm to use my sanctified imagination based on the scripture a little bit. Twelve high-powered guys. I know for sure two or three of them were high-powered guys because they were called the Sons of Thunder. Way back in the day when I was a youth pastor, when we had stuff together as several churches, we called that group the Sons of Thunder. We had a logo made with the lightning bolt hitting the guy wearing tennis shoes. You know, that's, that's what we want to be, the Sons of Thunder, you know. Did those guys get along? I guess you could ask, did they start 12 movements or one movement? We get to see them in some conflicts. A handful of conflicts in the scripture are recorded and a handful of resolutions are recorded or reconciliations. Our government is in a constant state of conflict. You know, today, I, shock of all shocks on the 
you know, I'm, I'm watching some news, and then they say, coming up next, you know, face the nation, and it looks like they're going to make a deal. Just, you know, <laughs> right at the 12th hour, I, I'm just surprised by that. I thought, sure, they would, you know. We almost didn't have a football season. Now there's something serious. <laughs> because of conflict between the players and the owners. And, and, and uh, you know, you can say one side was right and the other side was wrong. And I imagine if you're in the labor side of things, you say the players are right. And if you're in the management side, you think the owners are right. Doesn't matter. They didn't follow a godly plan of reconciling their differences. And we wouldn't expect them to. If our government started acting like Matthew 18, reconciling their differences, we'd all pass out. But if the church doesn't act like Matthew 18, reconciling our differences, we are no better than the government. Meditate on that. We love to criticize the government that doesn't do this, doesn't do that, doesn't do the other. We can argue just like them. We can, we can split up in parties just like them. We, if, if we say, look, we're in the business, we want, our wanter is set to do God's work. And so I'm going to put aside some of my, my petty differences. I'm going to put aside some of my pride, and, and I'm going to work together with my brother and sister. And when we disagree, we're going to sit down and talk about it and pray about it, and we're going to go forward, and the church is going to go forward because that's what Christ wants. He wants us to do this work of Christ. One last thought here, and that is this. You ought to resolve differences to participate in God's program for you. God is at work in us, through us, and around us all the time, but we often don't know exactly in detail what he is trying to accomplish. Now, let me give you an example of that. Now, we know that God wants us to glorify Him. Again, that overarching theme. We know that God wants me to live righteously, but we don't know what is God trying to do through my life. Uh, last week, I prayed for Cynthia Mordhorst, uh, the wife of, of Pastor Bob at Grace Baptist Church in Bellingham, our sister church. Uh, on Sunday, what I knew was what I'd heard the day and two before, which was uh, on Thursday a week ago, at 1 in the morning, or Friday at 1 in the morning, the people at the hospital called Bob and said, Bob, you better get your family here. Now, you know what that means at the hospital, right? That means we don't think your wife's going to make it. And just a few days before, she was at home. She was a little sick, you know, had a little flu, whatever. And, uh, and, and all of a sudden, boom, he comes home, and, and they rush her to the hospital, and she's got sepsis, and she's, boy, she's dying. And uh, much prayer was made, much medicine was made. And I went in there on Monday uh, after talking to my friend Daryl Beto, who says, yeah, I tried to call up the hospital. And they said, well, you could talk to her. I mean, she was intubated with all the tubes, all that stuff. You can talk to her. And I went in there, and there she was laying there, just like she was taking a snooze, you know. And we talked, and she just, like nothing had ever happened. Now, the question I want to ask is, why did that happen? 
Truthfully, I don't know. And things happen in your life, and you don't know why they happen. But if you would say of your life, I want to accomplish what God wants me to accomplish in my life, what is the path to getting there? The path is the path that Bob and Cynthia and their family walked on, which is righteous behavior all through the ordeal. And so when it comes to conflict with us, we have to say, I don't know what God is trying to accomplish, but I know he wants me to resolve this, and so I will walk on that path in order to accomplish what God wants me to do. Listen to what he says about his word. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That means if you pick up God's word and you say, I'm going to live this way today, even though I don't fully grasp what's going to come out at the end of the day, God says, that will not be an empty day. The word void. It won't be a useless day. It won't be a wasted day. It will accomplish what who wants? What God wants. But when we look at our life and say, that's too hard, I don't like it, cuts across my pride, I'm not going to go there, and we walk in our own path, be assured that we only accomplish what we are doing, not what God wants. If God tells you in His Word how He wants you to act when you come into conflict, then obeying his word is the way to participate in what he is trying to do. I have a friend who used to live out in the country, out in Whatcom County, and he had a huge problem with moles in his yard. You know, his yard was one of those that looked like a topographical map of the Rockies, you know, boom, 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 all these molehills. You know, he was a he was an office guy in town, as kind of a city guy. As he was driving, he lived out by Nugent's Corner, out that way. As he's driving home, every time night he would drive home, he saw this one yard, one yard mole free. Oh, he lusted for that yard, and and so finally, and, and this guy was not a real outgoing kind of a guy, kind of a quiet guy. But one day he said, "I just got to find out." So he stops, goes up. Hey, mister, how do you get the moles out of your yard? <laughs> and he said, that guy launched into a, 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 a speech about all the ways you can get rid of moles. You know, you can do this, and you can do that, and you can do the other. That guy wanted a mole-free yard, and he didn't rest until he got it. His wanter was clearly fixed. No. <laughs> I'm still doing battle with one little rascal. I bought a trap and I set it and it didn't do anything. Because ultimately I want to sit in my chair more than I want to catch a mole. See, I talked to somebody about how they catch moles and they said, well, you know, uh, you can just do this and this and this. And they said... I chased that mole around all day last Saturday. (laughs) 
I don't want the mole that bad. I'll pay a guy to come get rid of him. But I don't want it that bad. And so I'm talking to you about your wanter today. Do you want what God wants? Do you want it so bad that you will do what God says? We all want to live in peace. I'm pretty sure that unless you were playing, you know, the devil's advocate or crazy junior higher, and I said, do you want to live in peace? You'd all go, yeah, I want to live in peace. Well, I want to live in peace too. And if I were to say to you, do you want to accomplish what God wants to accomplish in your life? You'd go, yeah, ultimately I do. The only path to get there is to say, God, help me to resolve the difficulties that I encounter with other people in my life as they come, whether they be small or large. I cannot ignore God's plan and reap God's results. The beginning of resolving conflict is a godly wanter. If you want what God wants, you'll do what God does, and you will reap His blessing and His peace in your life. Heavenly Father, help us. We want pleasure. We want all kinds of things that suit us. Help us. Help us to be truly godly people who want what you want and do what you say, particularly today in this area of conflict and reconciliation. I pray in Christ's name, amen.